Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 15 and 16, and a little bit of 17. Uh, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, you can find this on page 58 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Exodus 15:27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In verse 26, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a, to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages. 
according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. The resurrection changes everything. Have you heard that before? See, last week, Brandon showed us how the resurrection changes everything. And so now, what happens after the resurrection? How are we to live? The resurrection has changed history It's changed the world. It's changed the future. It's changed many lives. The question we look at this morning for each of us is, has the resurrection changed us as God would have it? Let's pray. Our Father, your word is your truth. You've given us patterns in your word. You've given us life in your words. I pray that your spirit would speak this word into each of our lives. We're at different places on the journey. We thank you for your patience with us on that journey. But Lord, we do desire to grow up in full maturity in you. Lead the way by your spirit teaching us through your truth today. In Christ we pray. Amen. We are back in Exodus following uh, an excursion into Colossians and, of course, the Easter Sunday Sermon. What's interesting as we look at this passage, it fits hand in glove with where we left off because it gives us a picture of life after the resurrection. We see the connection made by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He talks about the Israelites' journey. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, these things took place as examples for us. So this story is more than a story about Israelites' history. It's a story for us 
to learn from. And this time in their history parallels our time after the resurrection. Uh, If you recall from Pastor Brandon's sermon last week, he spoke of four radical, cosmic-changing events. The creation. God created a perfect world for us to dwell in and live in relationship with him. But the fall was sin came in and broke that world. And it twisted the world and it twisted us. But God sent his son in redemption in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead to offer us new life. But we now await that fourth event, and that is the new creation, where God will make all things new again. This entire cosmos will be transformed and made like it was originally intended. We can parallel this with Israel's history. Their creation was the promise to Abraham himself that they would be a blessing to the world. And yet we see as they go enter into Egypt after a while, they're taken into slavery. Just as we are in slavery to sin, they were in slavery to Egypt. But they had a redemption through Passover. The angel of death passed over them just as judgment passes over us when the blood of Christ is applied to our lives. And we see in Paul's words that in many ways, as as Israel awaits the promised land, there's still a time between us and the new creation. There is a time period between Israel's redemption and yet the access into that promised land. As they live between the Red Sea and the promised land, we live between the resurrection and the new creation. And so we can learn from their journey. Paul tells us, learn from their journey. And what we are going to see is we're going to answer three questions. What's our purpose in that journey? What's the pathway to live in that journey? And what is the source of life in that journey. The purpose in our journey is to glorify God. See, Israel started out, and it wasn't only three days into their journey that they found that they didn't have any water. They were having trials and tribulations. And it's something we find as well. They might have expected after they left, went through the Red Sea that now everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. It's going to be easy from here. The Lord has redeemed them. We often feel that way after the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are given new life and we expect God has done all this wonderful work for us. And now life's going to be peace and prosperity. They quickly find that's not the case. They're without water. And we're going to see three instances of tribulation and trials. We all face tribulations and trials. Life after the resurrection doesn't change that way. What changes is what God's going to do through those purposes, in his purposes, 
through those trials and tribulations. Israel's response is not one to be followed. We read in chapter 15, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? God gives them drink. They travel for another month and a half, and now they're, they're looking for food. They need more food. And so Exodus 16 tells us, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by our meat pots and ate bread to the full. But you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. And we see now much more than grumbling. We see them looking back at the past and desiring what they had while they were in slavery under Egypt. And they begin to draw this conclusion that God has brought us out here to kill us. And God provides manna and he provides quail. He fills that. But in their journeys, they once again are without water. And their response then in Exodus 17 is, the people thirsted there for water. And the people, let's hear it, against Moses and said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to do what? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. There are difficulties. There are trials. How do we respond to them? With grumbling and, and, and questioning about God? They grumbled because they did not understand who God is and what God is about. They grumbled because they saw God as one who is there to fulfill their needs. No water. There's something wrong here, God. No bread. There's something wrong here, God. No water. God, why aren't you there? And it even says that they tested God. You don't test a superior, you test the inferiors, those who are under you. And yet Israel has placed themselves above God as they test him. And part of their test was, if we don't have water, what did Moses feel? They're about to stone me. They have an image of God as being their servant. And if we have that picture that God's real purpose is to serve us, that we are really the center of life, and he's there for our needs and our desires, then we are going to grumble when things fall around apart apart from us. And we're going to begin to question God just like they questioned God. And we are going to begin to look elsewhere in what others have or what we once had rather than entrusting God. 
they looked at God as many modern unbelievers look at God today, as many believers look at God today. He is there really to serve us. But Moses had a different picture of God, and he tried to present that picture to Israel. Chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of God. Moses is trying to tell them, there is one God, he is not the God of Egypt, he is not the God of, of the Palestine. He is your God, his name is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is not a God that you make up in your mind. He is the one true God. He's the one who delivered you out of Egypt. What does that tell you about God? He is compassionate. He is loving. He does care for us. But, in addition, he is also the Lord of glory. And when you see God, it isn't simply that God comes to satisfy your needs. You will see a God of glory. He is the center of life, not us. It is not about his purpose to satisfy us. It is our purpose to glorify him. And when we get God right, then we begin to understand our circumstances in a right way. Moses gets frustrated, but Moses understands that God works. He delivered them from Egypt. He made the bitter water sweet. He brought manna. He brought water out of the rock. What's the response of Israel? We will complain the next time we don't have what we want. What should our response be? Praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God. He is to be glorified and magnified. In these circumstances, Moses comes to understand, especially as they're on the verge of entering the promised land, that difficulties are opportunities for God to be gloried. In Deuteronomy 1, when they're on the edge of the promised land, the people are fixated on how strong the army is and how fortified the cities are. And they say, God brought us out here to kill us. We've heard that before. God hates us. But Moses looked at the circumstances and he said, God is with us. He carried us through the wilderness as a mother carries a child. That means... This is an opportunity 
for God to show his glory, for God to bring us into the promised land. James 1, which was read before, shows us the other opportunity that are in times of trial and tribulation and tragedy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, and let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. These kinds of circumstances build a character of endurance, but they're building us into maturity, into completeness, into Christ-likeness. Tribulations are times for God to be glorified as he enters into those and shows himself or by the transformation of those who follow him as they become more like Christ and speak of the wonders and glory of Christ himself in the way they live and the character they've developed. There's a book that uh, is entitled What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, I think that's a great title. When when people have marital struggles, what if they really believed that God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? We would find value in whatever struggles we have in our marriage. Well, we could say that about child rearing. What if God made us parents to make us more like Christ than to have the perfect children? What if God brought disappointments into our life to, tr- to glorify God rather than to have them quickly relieved? can think of so many areas of our lives, the trials and the tribulations. They are about making us more like Jesus Christ. They are not about relieving us of the pain quickly. So the purpose in the resurrection journey is to glorify God, make him the center. The pathway to follow in that journey is the law of God the commandments of God. Moses tells them, even though they have they've not received the law, there is no Mosaic law at this time in Israel's history. They have not gone to Sinai yet. But God's going to prepare them for the law because that's the way they're going to live. And in this preparation, he's going to explain the nature of the law, which is important for us to understand. He says to the people, if you will diligently listen to the voice of your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to the commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Notice the things he says about the law. It's the voice of God. It's the voice of God. The law is not some construction of man. If you wanted to hear God speaking to you, you turn 
to his law. It is what is right. We're going to see over and over in Scripture, people do what's right in their own eyes. But that isn't the same as being right. To be right is to be right in the eyes of God. And that's what the law brings us. And then the law is healing. You will receive none of the diseases that come upon you. See, the law is good. So many people, when you talk about the law, what do you think, what picture comes into their mind? I remember the old a card I saw was the American classic where you have this old farmer and his wife, and they're standing there with the pitchforks, if you know that one. And they have these very dour faces. And the caption of the card was, if it's fun, it must be sin. And I think that's the way a lot of people look at the law is, if it's the law, it must be stripping us of fun. It's, it's constrictive. It's restraining. And yet Moses is saying, no, it is healing. See, he doesn't say at the end, as some might expect, follow the law because God says, I am the judge. He doesn't say that here. He says, follow the law because I am the healer. It is life-giving when we follow God. If this world is good, if this world is, is the way it should be, if it's, a, if it's a paradise, then if God comes in with his law, it's an intrusion into this world. He's messing it up he, because it's so great. But if this world is broken, if the people in this world are broken, if we are lost and we don't know our way, then the word of God, the commandments of God, are life for us. Which do you think the world is like? Is it really the way it should be or is it so broken? We need God to come in to save us and to lead us. God's law is the way. So what we've seen so far, the, the purpose in the journey is to glorify God. The pathway is to walk in his commands. The source of life in this walk is Jesus Christ. Do we see him in this passage? Yes. See, God provided manna daily with the exception of the, for, for the Sabbath, the day before he gave them two portions of manna so they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. But he provided for them daily, day after day, just enough for that day so they couldn't hoard it up, but they had to experience the manna that particular day. There's another reference to Moses being the provider of manna. And it occurs in John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men, plus the women and children. 
And the result of that was the people tried to force him to become king. He had to take off quickly so that wouldn't happen. But when they came back, they're surrounding him. And their expectation is if Jesus can do this miracle, he can bring us bread every day because that's what Moses did. And the people point out, Moses brought us manna every day, bread from heaven. And Jesus' response is, the bread from heaven is me. I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will live forever. You see, there's a physical sustenance, but there's a spiritual sustenance, and that is Jesus Christ. And when they come to the rock, they have no water. They are thirsting. Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out of that rock. Paul tells us who that rock is. He says in 1 Corinthians again, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and they all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. And then it says... For they drank the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the living water, the water of life. It is him, his truth in the gospel of his death on the cross and his resurrection that is life-giving and is the sustenance which we must eat and drink Every day. We can't store it up by having a five-hour quiet time one day and that takes care of the month. It is daily, consistently. Jesus said, abide in me. It is moment-to-moment dependence upon Jesus Christ as our food, spiritual food and our spiritual drink. What does that mean practically? It means we find our lives in Christ. It means we, we apply the gospel to every arena of life. We find our identity in Christ. Not in our pocketbook or our profession, in our degrees, in our family. We find it in Jesus Christ that we are unconditionally loved by God himself. We are cherished by him. The Apostle John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't say that to say, Jesus loved me more than the rest. He said that because a name is a person's identity. To him, his identity was beloved. That's our identity in Jesus Christ. Where do we find our rest? Our rest is in Christ. It's not in God removing the problems of life. It is knowing that 
the God who orchestrated the gospel, the perfect eternal plan, where the darkest day in human history, Good Friday, where the creature crucified the creator, was transformed by the resurrection so that it became Good Friday, the most beautiful day. That's the sovereign God we have of the gospel. That is the transformation God can do in every piece of our lives that may look like the darkest day he can transform into the most beautiful day, just like he did in the gospel. In the gospel, we find our authentic selves. We don't find ourselves by searching deeply, looking deeply inside ourselves, finding a broken piece of us and saying, that's me. We find it in the realization that in the cross of Christ, God looked at us and saw everything broken about us, every sin, every rebellion against him and said, I love you. I take that sin upon myself so you can become the true person you were always meant to be, a person in God's image. And so we don't need to hide ourselves from God, from ourselves, or from other people because we are forgiven by the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. We find our hope in Christ, not in the industrial revolution, not in the scientific age or the computer age. None of those will make the world perfect. We find it in the fact that Christ died to fix the broken world he raised, and he's bringing us a new creation. And that's where we can fix our eyes on that hope and endure all sorts of problems till that day. It is the gospel that addresses death itself. We don't find comfort in death through wishful thinking that everybody gets in or by trying to numb the pain of death by saying, well, it's just another stage of life we have to endure. No. Jesus Christ died for our sins so we could live forever. I think I heard her song, something like that this, this morning. appreciate that the grave cannot keep us. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, you can do that. Think of any area in your life. And there's a false hope given by our cultures that we buy into. And then there is a truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that brings us life. The world, Jesus Christ changed everything. But right now we're living in between that ultimate change of the new creation. We still live in a very broken world that the cross does fix, but in the future. Jesus said it to his disciples before he parted from them. He said, In the world, you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We will have tribulation, but it need not defeat us. But through that tribulation, we cling to the 
purpose of glorifying God, and he will do that when we remain faithful. And we will not be directed off the path, but we will follow the command of God, and we will find the very source of life is Jesus Christ moment by moment, and then we will join Jesus Christ as overcomers. Our Father, we thank you that what you speak in the Old Testament is what you speak in the New Testament. You've given us vivid pictures there. You've given us the fulfillment in the reality in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that, O Lord. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. We live this time of tribulation awaiting that new creation of beauty where you are glorified by all, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.